Let's pray. God, our eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Your word says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God, and we know that in and of ourselves, there's nothing pure about us. But you are our righteousness. You are a fount of many blessings. You're our rock. You're our righteousness. You've reconciled us to God. God, your word tells us that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we would pray this morning that your word would just cut through the silliness, cut through the distractions, and God, that it would truly be effectual in our lives that when we leave here, God, your word has changed us and that we we see the glory of the Lord that much better. So God, I pray that you would show us yourself this morning. God, protect your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, good morning. Wow, what a packed morning already. Whew. Now that I'm back to teaching school, this is one of those times a year where all the people graduating and I get to go to parties and eat and, and eat and, and eat and eat. And it's just been a fantastic time. There's just something, there is something uh, special about people moving into different stages in life. And even as we see it this morning as Jacob moves into a different stage in life, um, when you watch it from the outside and get to see these kids move into places where you've already been, you've already made that change, you, you kind of went through that, that wasteland or whatever you want to call it, and, and you know what they're about to go into, and so you, you almost vicariously live in some excitement because you know what, what they're about to experience. You know the fun and the sleepless nights and the, some of the craziness that they're going to get into. And... They're talking about Ecclesiastes in the middle school Sunday school room today and uh, talking about how all of this is so purposeless if in the end your passion isn't for God. And we're going to see that in Jacob this morning. So uh, we took a break last week and we went, uh, we, we talked about Mother's Day and, and how great that non-Hallmark season is and that there was really a purpose for it. Woo-hoo, it's great to know that. And, and now we're going to get back into Genesis 28. If you're new with us this morning, um, what we do is we're going to step through a book of the Bible. And right now we're stepping through Genesis and we are in kind of the middle of chapter 28. So I'll give you a second to find that. And where we were last time was Jacob and his mom just deceived Isaac, Jacob's father, into giving Jacob this blessing. And the older brother, who thought the blessing should have been his, was uh, slightly angry. Angry enough to say, hmm, my dad's about to die. I'll mourn for him for a little bit. 
and then I'm coming after you. And so this, this Jacob is a little bit scared. And so is mom. And so mom gets him and says, you know what? I'm going to send you off to my brother. We're going to, you got to run because your brother, he's bigger than you and he shoots straighter than you. You're going to, you'll be done. And so they, they feared a great deal. And, and so they go to Isaac and they say, you know what? These wives that Esau, the brother married, it caused me so much trouble. I'm just going to die if Jacob goes off and marries one of these crazy women too. Send him away. And so Isaac blesses him again and, and sends him on his way. And so that's where we are right now in Jacob's life. Jacob is essentially running for his life. And we pick it up then in verse 10. And it says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, let's just grab that. So what's going on? First off, this is the part, this, this blew me away. And I, I had to go look it up because I just didn't believe it. You know how old Jacob was right now? Yeah, you know, here's the picture that I have in my head. I have, ah, you know, 40, 50, because we actually have the age 40. We know when he turned 40. So maybe 45. I mean, he's probably pretty spry, and he's about to make a 450-mile journey, and he's running for his... The man's 77 years old. I'm looking at the looks, and some of you said, huh, no, he isn't. That's just not even... Uh, so I did the same thing. When I saw that, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And so the way we get that is to go back and, and, and work backwards from when we knew he went to Egypt and how old Joseph was and how old they were when Joseph was born, yada, yada. He's 77 years old. So this is no spring chicken that just decided to tell dad a quick one and run off. This man has a life. This man is kind of, well, that's midlife then. So he's, he's kind of in the middle of his life, and we see that now he's running just to stay alive. He just left everything. He left his home. He left his mother, which he would never see again. He left his inheritance. He left his safety. He left everything that he knew, and now he heads off toward Haran. Verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid it down on that place to sleep. So we have to get this picture right before we move into this fantastic dream that he has. When I started studying for this, I just, it's just so weird. You think, huh? And then the more you study, the more you say, you know what? God's word really is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as you dig into God's word, it just starts digging into you. And you just go, wow, God, you're incredible. And that's what we're going to, we're going to see that here. But we have to have the right frame of mind first. So we, we have to kind of put ourselves in Jacob's position. Jacob is the schemer. Right? That's what we know about Jacob. We know that Jacob, you know, and he gets this name because he deceived his dad and he deceived his brother and he tried to steal the birthright. And, you know, it says that he's kind of soft. He hangs around the house with, on mom's apron strings. And, you know, you just kind of get this, this picture of Jacob, right? And now here he is in the dark, all alone, with nothing. 
And as I put this together and see these different stages of this passage, Jacob relied quite a bit on himself. But right now, I don't think he's much relying on himself. He's scared. At any moment, he could just feel the shoop as his brother sneaks up behind him and gets him with an arrow. Because as far as he's concerned, Esau's right there. And Esau's a hunter. And Esau's just stalking him, just waiting for the moment when he gets kind of, you know, in that one little precarious position and he's done. And as far as Jacob's concerned, that's going to happen. And so he's scared to death. And he's in, this, he's in this place mentally where there's just nothing in him left. And as you think about that, you say, wow, that's, that is just exactly where God needed him to be. He had a friend a, a number of years ago, in fact, still have a friend, that uh, was running from the law. They, they had done some things and they needed to go to jail. And they lived in their house with the shades drawn all the time. They, they, never, they tried to never go outside. They never peeked outside because there were some police officers who lived on their street. And they just knew if they had ever just looked outside and they knew and the police officers knew that they were home, that's it. But when they did have to go outside, this person just told me they're always looking over their shoulder, always looking over their shoulder in fear that any moment it's going to happen. They're going to find him. And eventually, this person just, they had enough of that and said, I'm ready to go. You need to just take me to the jailhouse and turn themselves in and, and just release that running and running and running. And all of us have had this as a kid, right? You're at home, mom and dad are gone, you're playing ball after they told you not to play ball in the house and the lamp, and then you, you kind of glue it back together, tape it back together the best you can sit there and just wait for him to come home, but you're sweating. You're just, oh, you just know it's going to come. That conscience is just killing you because you know when they find out it's going to be the end. It's going to be the end. And this is how, right now, that's, that's how Jacob feels. He, there's nothing left for him to hold on to. And it's right where Jacob needed to be. So let's go on to the next piece. At this point, Jacob's prepared. His, he's leaning on God only. His, there's, there's nothing left in himself. Right? We, we see it in, in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know they have nothing left. They have nothing that they can bring to the table. There's nothing that they can bargain with. Nothing. He's, he's in a perfect place. All the way through scripture, we have this, we have this, this theme that says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? God opposes those that just rely totally on themselves. As we were praying for these kids, that their passion would not be for their skills and how fast they run and what they can do, but their passion would be for the living God. Why? Because if it isn't, God opposes the proud, He opposes the one that just relies on himself for everything. So right now, Jacob is in a perfect place for God to intersect his life. So he gets there. He lies down in the dark. He puts up a pillow, a stone. And it says in verse 12, And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. 
And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So where is he? He's sitting in this place that they called it Luz. Now there's a, a little bit of a discrepancy as to what that word means. But I'm going to say it means the city of refuge. Hey, some, of them, some people said it meant the city of deception, and those two are so far off that I'm not sure how they played the words on there. But he, he fleed to this place called essentially the city of refuge. But he didn't stay in the city. He's up on the ridge. So if you geographically try and put this together, you have the Dead Sea. He left the south end of the Dead Sea, and he ran 55 miles, or rode his camel, or his go-kart, or whatever it was, up to the north end of the Dead Sea, where he's at Bethel now. He's where Bethel will be, up in the hill country. But this place has always been used as essentially a pagan worship place. It, it, it always was there. And so he knew about this place for some reason. He went there and he, he took refuge. And he dreamed. And the dream is the part, this is the strangest dream. In Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews starts off and says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many ways, very many times, many ways. And this is certainly one of those, those many ways. He had this dream and he showed him a ladder, or better, the NIV translate this, translates this a staircase, right? And so he sees this staircase, and, and the bottom of it is on the earth, and the top of it is, is up in the clouds, it's in heaven, and the angels are going up and down this staircase, and, and he's just dreaming it, and at the top, of the, the top of the ladder, the top of the staircase, is the Lord, and the Lord says, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father, Abraham, and of your father, Isaac. And it goes on to make promises to him. And this is the part when I, when I had started studying that just got me the most. Because the first thing I read was, well, the latter is a type of Christ. And I said, how in the world do you get that? Because if this is the type of Christ, then what God just showed Jacob was kind of a revelation of his plan of redemption. What he just showed him was Christ opening heaven and, and the way to get, I thought, mm, we, we have to study a little more. But sure enough, keep your finger here, turn back to John 1 in the New Testament. John 1, verse, we're going to start in 59, or excuse me, start in 49, but here's the picture that we have. Philip had found Jesus, and he had ran out and found Nathanael, and he said, Nathanael, we found him, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah. He's, he's the son of Joseph the, from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, Psh, does anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And Jesus says, um, 
wow, you're Nathaniel. You know, you're like, you're a, you're a Hebrew of Hebrews. There's nothing false in you. And good critical thinking Nathaniel looks at him and says, excuse me, um, how do you know me? And Jesus says, you know, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Nathaniel came to you. And for some reason, that just stalls Nathaniel in his tracks. And that's where we pick this up. One, starting in 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He's, he's fulfilling right here. He's, he's fulfilling Jacob's ladder. He's telling him the purpose of Jacob's ladder. He's quoting that piece. But there's a significant difference. What did Jacob see? Jacob saw this staircase that went from heaven, or excuse me, from earth to heaven. But there's a different word that Jesus uses. He said, you're going to see heaven opened. You're going to see heaven opened, and you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on me. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What God was showing Jacob was his plan of redemption. He was revealing to him what this is going to look like, but it wasn't totally fulfilled. At the top of the ladder, when Jacob saw it, he saw the Son of Man. He saw the Lord, and the Lord said, I am the Lord your God, but he didn't see it opened up. And Jesus fulfilled that and said, you're going to see so much more than this. You're going to see heaven opened. All the way through scripture, we see these kind of, these, these, these phrases that Jesus uses. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light. I'm the way. I'm the life. I'm the truth. I, have, I went through, if you do this, this is really fun. Go to the New Testament and just do this search. Just type in, I am. Just I am, and just make it look for that exact phrase. And it's amazing all the different things that Jesus says, I am this, I am this, all these different things. Some of them, um, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am going to prepare a place for you. I am in you. That's how he just ends in John. The, this, this I am that, that opens up heaven for us. I am the gate. This, this very gate that Jacob says when he wakes up, and we'll get to this in a minute. When he, when he wakes up, he says, wow, God is in this place. This is, this is the house of God, the gate to heaven. Jesus says, I, I am the gate. Now, it's a different gate. It's the gate to the sheep pen, but I am the gate. He is the gate to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we piece these things together, and we see that God is showing Jacob his very plan to redeem mankind and showing him that he's going to play a vital role in this. It is interesting when you think of Genesis, the, the first 27 chapters, got us through Isaac from like 15 billion years ago or whatever in, at the time when, when God created the heavens and the earth to here in Isaac. That, that's the first 27 chapters. But now we're setting the foundation of this redemptive plan and the entire rest of Genesis all the way to 49 when, when Isaac actually dies, or excuse me, when Jacob dies, is stepping through Jacob's family. He's setting that framework of Jacob, 
here is going to be my redemptive plan and here is the part that you're going to play in it. You know, I, there's a place in, in Acts where Stephen is being stoned and he stops and he looks up and he uses that same phrase and he says, I see heaven opened up and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's fulfilled. Heaven, heaven is open. Heaven is open. That, that stairway that Jacob saw, and didn't, he didn't quite understand it. He just, he just woke up and said, wow, I, God's in this place. I think I better stand up a stone and, and do something. And then what God was showing him did come to pass. And for each one of us, before we go there, we're going to be able to say, oh, I see that heaven is opened up. I see that the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God and I'm initiated into that because I've believed upon Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I've been reconciled to God. So, part two there. We, we first saw that God brought Jacob to this odd place where he had peeled away everything that Jacob held so tightly to. And he's sitting in this place with a rock under his head, in the dark, all alone. And I'm sure he's struggling. But God's prepared him to hear his voice. And the distractions, even this morning, one of the first things, as, as Pastor Dan came up, he said, so how you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm distracted. I'm just, I'm distracted. Every one of us come in here with distractions that you bring in from the world. Every day. You know, some of them are, are kind of, I don't know, self-built. The, the distractions I had this morning were kind of self-built. And, and I like to think of it like this, because it creates pain, right? It creates this, this awkward pain that keeps you from hearing from the Lord and, and God needs to bring us this place where we can hear him. And I, I think of it this way. If you, if you think of a guy with six arms, okay, I'm a math guy. I'm allowed to think of people with six arms or eight or 10, I don't care. The Spider-Man guy, you know, that, the villain. And all your arms are just wrapped around the world as tightly as you can hold on to it, just, just holding on. And this is how Jacob was, right? Everything. Everything that he had is just holding on to what he knows and what he can control. And God says, mm, I'm going to use you in my redemptive plan and so I'm going I'm to have to start peeling those off. And, and, and since you're holding on so tightly, when he starts peeling them off, fingers, they, they pop off. It hurts. There's pain. There's pain. And I'm not going to say that all pain is created when God starts peeling your arms off of the world. But there is some pain as we hold on tight to the world and God says, no, no, no. No, no, you can't hold on to me with those same arms that you're holding on to the world with. And he starts peeling them off and that's where we find Jacob, right? We find God peeling these things off and he's in this place of just, ugh. But then God speaks to Jacob. When his heart is ready, the environment is ready, God speaks to Jacob. 
he speaks to him loudly. He tells him about his redemption. He tells him about himself. He tells him about what he's going to do in his life. The promise. Here's the promise he tells him. There's a number of pieces of this promise. He says... Six things. Let's read that. Uh, Verses 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am God, the God of Abraham your father and and God of Isaac. The land which you lie I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you and go, and, excuse me, keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So there are six things that God promised him here. One, I'm going to give you the land. This sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? This is exactly what he told Abraham, I'm going to give you the land. Your offspring will be many. All the families on earth are going to be blessed through you. I will keep you. I am with you. And I'm going to bring you back. Isaac was never allowed to leave the land. Remember that? We talked about that earlier. No matter what happened, Isaac was not going to leave. Jacob, on the other hand, he's gone. But God says, I'm with you. I'm going to keep you. And I'm going to bring you back. So God speaks to him when his heart was ready to hear it. You know, we, we said earlier about Hebrews 1. Here's the end, the, the second verse in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 said, I'm gonna, I, I, our forefathers, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways at many times through the prophets. In 2, verse 2 it says, but in these last days, he spoke, he's speaking to us through Christ. And so we have here in, in Jacob, in Jacob, his heart was ready. God spoke to him in one of these various ways. For us, God's still going to prepare our hearts. He's going to peel us over. He's going to, when it's time, he's going to create an environment in our lives that we're just ready for him to speak into our life. And when, when we're ready for that, God knows just the perfect timing. He's the only one that can orchestrate the pieces in your life to make you in a place where when he speaks into your life, you're ready to hear it. And he speaks to us now through Christ. We're not seeing ziggurats. We're not seeing stairways into heaven. We're not, we have his gospel. We have Christ. We have forgiveness. So the last piece here then We have the environment, we have God speaking to him, and then we have the response. What does Jacob do? He wakes up in the morning and says, no more eating camel for me, no more pepperoni pizza. If I had a dream like that, I would wake up just laughing. I'd be laughing so hard I'd fall out of bed. What angel, what? What? And, I'd, and I'd, I'd have to sit back, and if I still remembered it 10 minutes later, I'd be thinking about that. What? Whoa. Well, God doesn't speak to me that way, usually, ever. God speaks to me in his word. But how did Jacob respond? He gets up and he says, 
Let's read that. I lost my... Go back to Genesis 28. How does he respond? Fifteen? Nope. Sixteen. Thank you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other other than the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. 18. So early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow. So he gets up in the morning and something is different. He encountered God last night and he knew it. He had heard stories, right? Isaac had told him about this God. He wasn't, this was not his God. Okay, Isaac, Isaac did not know God yet. Excuse me, Jacob did not know God yet. He knew of him, but he was not his God. You don't have any evidence of Jacob following the Lord. There's no fruit there. There's nothing there that we have. But, but God then interacts with him and he says, wow, God was here. What do you mean here? God wasn't in Haran? God wasn't in Beersheba? This is kind of like Jonah jumping, jumping on the boat and trying to get away from God. The psalmist, you know, where can I go? Even if I go to the place of the dead, there you are. There, where do you go to get away from God? So what he just found out is God is, is here. But this gets a little complicated because this place where he's sitting is a pagan worship area. And this is the part that I kind of had to go rounds back and forth with. Did what was the experience that Jacob was actually having here? He knew that this was a pagan worship area. So what, uh, so I threw up my hands and said, you know what? When Jesus quoted this dream and God continued to use Jacob throughout his life, whether or not this was a pagan worship area, it doesn't even matter. He responded to God and said, God is here. God is here. Then he makes this vow. I do have to put this one in, in uh, 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, where um, Elijah heals a general from leprosy. And the general tries to come and pay Elijah, and he says, no, 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 no. I'm not taking anything from you. And he says, well, fine, let me have some dirt. Let me take some dirt home so that I can make a, a, an altar to your God because in the ancient times, they believed that the, the God was there. It was territorial. And so God was in a certain place and so he wanted to take the dirt back to where he came from so that he could erect an altar and the God would be there. See that? Well, it's kind of the same thing here where he's, God must be here. He doesn't understand that God is omnipresent, that God is there, God is, he, God is everywhere. He doesn't understand that yet. He doesn't know the omnipotent God of Abraham. He doesn't know him yet. And so he's taking what he can and putting it in his little head and trying to figure things out. 
Okay? So we have to grab that piece because it, I think it adds some clarity as to, um, as to this response. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that I give, excuse me, and all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. If God takes care of me, he gives me food, he keeps me safe, he brings me peacefully back, he gives me clothing, he doesn't leave me, then he will be my God and I'm going to give him a tenth and I'm going to build him a house. And so here's a controversy piece. Some people say that if is the perfect word here. Because Jacob's faith was no better when he woke up than when he left Beersheba. He just had this dream. He didn't know what to do with it. He didn't really know God. And so he's making this deal. Well, if you do these things, then you've convinced me that you're really God and I will serve you. But if you don't, then I'm going to claim pepperoni pizza. That was, that was the dream and I'm going on in my way. But then others say that word if should be translated since. And what, Ab- or what Jacob is really saying here is, since you've promised me all these things, since you're going to be my God, since you're going to keep me safe, since you've promised these things, and you are the God of my father Abraham, and I know that you keep your promises, then I'm going to serve you. And so as you turn those things back and forth, I decided to say, mm-hmm, yes, it's both. It's both. So this man does not know God yet. He doesn't, it, here's a story. We had, we had a, a lady living with us a number of years ago, and she came up one, stairs, one time upstairs, and she puts her Bible down, and she says, show me the Ten Commandments. I've shared this story with some of you because I just love this story. She, she puts the Bible down on the counter, and she says, show me the Ten Commandments so that I can follow them, and when I follow them, then God will fix it all. Because I'm going to be his, I'm going to do the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to fix it all. So I opened it up, and Donna was sitting in the other room, and so I opened up the Bible, and I said, okay, here, read the first one. And the first one says, you will have no other gods before me. And so I explained to her what that meant, and I said, have you kept this one forever? And she said, well, no. And I closed the Bible, and I said, then it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. You are eternally separated from God. It doesn't matter. Close the book. And of course, Donna's in the other room screaming at me, Chris! But here's the point. This, this girl was being called by God. And she didn't know God yet. She didn't know the omnipotent creator of the universe who gave his son to reconcile us back to himself. That, that her sins were going to be forgiven and that, that she could have eternal life with the God who loves her. She didn't know this person And so what she thought was, okay, God has rules. The rules are in this book. If I follow the rules, then it'll all be okay. Our job is not to go there. Our job as the church is to say, I know the God that's calling you. If he calls you one more time, just say, here I am. 
here I am, let me show you. Let me show you the God that's seeking you, right? The, the God that's calling you right now. Let me show you who he really is. Because what happens is they get this, this goofed up idea because they only thought of God in their own little pea brain. Excuse me, that's not the right way to say it. They've only contemplated who God is in their natural man. That sounded much more churchy. And so what they've come up with is like Romans 1. They, they came up with this created kind of oblong looking God creature that isn't really God. And that's exactly what Jacob has here. He wakes up in the morning a little bit, uh-oh. He's scared. He knows he's interacted with God. He doesn't know what to do, but he knows he's heard something about altars and anointing and commitment and I need to give my life to him. And so he does that. Does he ever fulfill it? You ever, anybody ever found the fulfillment of this? Well, in fact, um, he totally forgets. He goes on about his business, and God fulfills everything for him, just like he does for us. Everything. God promises you salvation. God promises you reconciliation. He promises you be anxious about nothing, but the peace of God will transcend all understanding and guard your hearts and minds. He's going to give you those things. God keeps his promises. We, on the other hand, and so in chapter 35, God says, Jacob, um, you said that if I do these things, you're going to, and you forgot. How about you head back to Bethel? Because we have to talk again. And God leads him back to Bethel to, to fulfill his commitment to God. And so, that's kind of beautiful because I, I look at that and say, you know, we're, we're so the same way. We make, we make commitments to God and, and the world just tends to keep grinding and grinding and grinding. And there will be a time when the power of the Holy Spirit, God's going to take you and say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you back to this place. I have this church body that's going to hold you accountable. You know, you've, you've kind of started wrapping your hands back around the world. We're going to peel them back off again, right? Because in Romans 8, it tells us, he who called me is going to sanctify me. God himself is going to make me look more like Christ because I'm his. And I can, I can trust that promise that no matter where I started, Christ is going to finish me. Just like with Jacob. Jacob kind of forgot his commitment to God. And as, God, as, as Jacob got to know this God better and better, and he really did become Jacob's God, God reminded him, come back to me. Come fulfill this commitment you made. Let me reaffirm what I, was going to what I told you before. And so he did that. Summary. So there are these, these three pieces that I see in this passage. You see God creating this environment that we all run from. We do. We run from this environment where, where God's peeling us away and getting us ready to speak into our lives. But in quietness, that's where God's voice is just the loudest. When we're distracted, we're distracted by the mirror, how good I look, how good I am, that gets kind of loud and it drowns out God's voice. And so God has to remove some of those, 
those distractions. And then he speaks, just like he spoke to you. He speaks into your life. He shows us the gospel. He's revealed to us fully what his gospel is. Heaven is opened up now for us. We can be fully reconciled to God, praise the Lord. But then there's a response. Yes, we see heaven open and we see the angels going up and down, ascending and descending on the, on the, on the Son of Man. But then there's a place where you've got to take that. We have to get on that. And we have our response. Do we worship? Even imperfectly? Shakespeare said one time if a man would come up and, and try to give him a compliment and just totally butcher the compliment and quote the stanzas wrong and all that and Shakespeare says, that's fine. He was trying to compliment me. Only God knows the heart of man. Only God can judge the heart of man. As we sang that song, only the pure in heart see God. Only God knows what that response is going to look like. As imperfect as it may look, only God knows what that response is going to be like and whether it's true or whether it's just a lot of hot air. Let's pray. God, I love your word. I love what it does to us. I love what it does through us. God, I love that that all the way through you've just been exposing and showing us that that you care. You're not just some cosmic watchmaker that set things spinning and walked away, but but you're you're like infinitely close to us. And that you've had this plan for redemption all the way through. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for forgiving us. And thank you for calling us yours. Amen.